Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Nice to be with you guys today. If I have uh, not met you yet, my name is Weston. I am one of the pastors here. I oversee Hear the Cry and our hospitality team. Really excited for kind of what this next week's going to look like. I just invite you to uh, join in with us through, through this week as we prepare our hearts for Easter. It's going to be beautiful leading up to it. And if you've never been to a Good Friday gathering, they're so powerful. I'd encourage you to come out and join us um, on Friday. Um, Couple things um, to start off. Uh, I again, if just by way of introduction, I've got an amazing wife, Jenny, of 16 years. I've got four children. Um, they, they, we've been around here um, for a while now. Oldest is 15, youngest is nine. Tons of fun, extremely strong personalities, but just love being a part of this family, being a part of this family that uh, you guys are joining in today on. And so just really excited um, to be able to launch into this. You know, over the past few weeks, we've hit pause on this series uh, called Becoming Like Jesus. And we've done, done so, and we've slowed down on purpose to prepare our hearts for Easter, I mean, next Sunday already is Easter Sunday, and I don't know about you guys, but I know in my family, like oftentimes this was the Sunday, it kind of would sneak up on us, or at least it would sneak up on me. And all of a sudden it'd be like, Jenny probably has told me several times that Easter is coming. What did I, I see? So, somebody said one time, like, the most surprised person in the world is the husband who heard for the first time what his wife has told him three times. You know, you're just like, what? Like, that's happening? Yes, I've told you. Okay, great. We had that moment actually a couple weeks ago. It was pretty fun. Um, anyway, uh, but Easter like jumps up on us and it can be like a surprising thing sometimes. It's like, oh my goodness, like I can't believe it. it's already Easter, wow. The reality though is that Easter should probably be a bit more significant than that. Um, in fact, I would even go so far as to say Easter is probably a bigger deal than Christmas. Now, hold on before you freak out. The coming of the Messiah is huge. God incarnate, we're becoming flesh. Jesus being, coming into the world, massive deal. And I think our culture around that time of year, we, we celebrate that pretty well. We, a lot of times we'll stop and we'll, we'll talk about that. We kind of build up to it through Advent. But, but Easter is the climatic moment in all of history. The, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the central event in God's story. In fact, N.T. Wright says it this way, Easter was the moment towards which everything was rushing and from which everything emerges new. In the first week of this series that we're currently in called Story, Richard kicked it off by saying this. He said, we don't just celebrate Easter to remind ourselves of what Jesus did. We celebrate to reorient ourselves around the cross and the empty tomb. Easter changes everything, even us, and not just once, not just as a moment of salvation, not just the moment of making a decision. Easter has the power to change us every single day, even right now. So we pause, and we take a few weeks leading up to Easter to prepare our hearts to celebrate the crescendo of the story. 
Now, um, just by way of a quick shout out, a lot of this series has been framed in some of the content and quotes and some of the things that have come from this book. And I just want to encourage you, if you've never read this book, The Mission of God's People by Christopher Wright, grab it, read it. It's an incredible book that walks through the story of what we were created for. It's really, really cool. And like I said, we've used it a lot in um, framing out this series that we're in. Now, we've been looking at this story um, that we're a part of, because as Pete Hughes says, the story that we live in shapes the story we live out. The story we live in shapes the story we live out. Here's what we mean by that. If the story that we live in is one where, where you are the center of it, if I'm living a story where I am me-centered and the most important person in the story is me, everything kind of revolves around my needs and my wants and my wishes and my desires, which by the way is far more common than we like to admit to ourselves. But if that's the story that we live out then, or that we believe, then how we live that out will, will totally look different, right? Like if I, if I believe that I'm the center of my own life, then when I get cut off in traffic, right? When, when, when somebody else gets promoted ahead of me, when somebody else gets something that I feel like should be mine, or in any way offends me, or, may, or maybe I have, am second place to something, it shapes the way that I respond to that moment. If the story that we live in is one where our circumstances, where you live, the job you have, or your hurt defines you, then the story that we live out is one being okay to live in those circumstances or even that hurt because after all, it's, that's who I am. The story that we live in shapes the story that we live out. Now, my youngest daughter, Piper, she's nine. She's, she's hilarious. Um, tons, of, tons of spit and vinegar or whatever my grandpa said. I don't know. But like tons of that, right? She's like really, really, really strong. I remember one time she was three. She was three and... Um, uh, she was, had a little bit of an attitude towards me, right? And so I was just like, Piper, I'm not sure that's the best attitude. She kind of threw her hands in the air and she's like, I'm Swaggy P, and walked away. <laughs> I'm like, let's hold for a minute. Did you say you're Swaggy P? I'm Swaggy P. Walked away, no, 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 no. Like, you're not anybody yet. Like, you, like you haven't even, like, created your own identity, let alone an alter ego that then you can act out of. Like, what are we doing? Like, she believed that she was Swaggy P, and so then the way that she responded out of that was unique and different, right? She's just, her mind works differently. Yesterday, um, I was working on some of this, and, and I just heard some knocking down, down the hallway, like, bam, bam. Like, hey, Piper, what, what are you doing? She came running in. I'm working on a secret knock. I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, you want to hear it? I'm like, yeah. She does this. I was like, was that the secret knock? She's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, I got some bad news for you about that one. Um, anyway, but she, she, she has this idea and this version of life that she, if she believes, it's going to shape the way that she walks out, right? The story that you live in shapes the story that you live out. But if the story that we live in is God's story, what he thinks about us, how he values us, how he views us, and then there and only there will we be able to experience his blessing, his kingdom, his hope, his goodness, his peace, his joy. And the story then that we live out shapes the way we treat people when we get cut off in traffic or anything else. If we believe the story that we're a part of, it will shape how we live out. And that's why we've taken the time to look at creation 
the fall, redemption, and today, new creation. So here we are on Palm Sunday, what some call the triumphant entry. Man, what a day that must have been. And so turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. If you need a Bible, there's amazing people walking around the room that have a Bible. You put your hand in the air and they'll give you one. For the rest of us, turn with me to Matthew 21. And would you stand with me? And as you are standing, I am going to pray before I read. Come, Holy Spirit. A prayer that is as old as the church. Come, Holy Spirit. Reveal yourself to us this morning. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You can grab a seat. Easter is the event in time which all of history was rushing towards. As we've looked at the first three acts of the story, those three acts, we see this, this entirety of human history aching for a Messiah, for a Savior. Through creation, through the fall, through redemption, it aches for it. God himself speaks of a day when. Prophets prophesy about a day. Fathers tell their children about this. The stars tell the story of it. All of history, waiting, aching, even the scripture says groaning in anticipation. And then Jesus arrives. Jesus growing, learning, teaching, healing, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. And with each new chapter of his life, the reality that he was and is the Messiah is coming into view more and more clearly. Some moments in his life whisper this while others shout it out. It's like going to the eye doctor. Have you ever sat in the chair of the eye doctor and they have the sign on the far wall and they put that big, those big round things in front of you and the eye doctor says one or two or about the same. You know that moment, right? Where you're sitting there and one or two, but, and sometimes I guarantee you, he's like, they're the same. I'm just goofing with them. You know, it's like how in the world? But then sometimes it's like, oh, that's a little more clear. Oh, that's a little more clear. And then sometimes it's a big jump. Like, oh, there, I can see it now. That was like the moment as Jesus would grow and as he would fulfill prophecy, those that followed him and those that even watched from a distance could see moments in his life that would whisper the fact that he was actually fulfilling some of the prophecy and some he had no control over, like where he was born and, and what family he was born into. But then there's some moments that would just shout it. 
And we see that right here in the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. I'm a huge fan of narrative and of story. It's how my brain works. I, I, I love it so much because it helps connect sometimes emotions that we would maybe miss with, with an emotion that we understand and all of a sudden things open up in a new clear way. And this story is wild. And so I'm gonna do my best to help kind of shape and give context to what actually is going on here. So let me see if I can set the stage. Passover was approaching. In this time that Jesus rode into the city, Passover was approaching and it was customary and, and still is customary from Jews, for Jews from all over the region to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's estimated that at this time when Jesus rode in, that the numbers in Jerusalem, the, the number of people in the city swelled to about two million people in a city, just massive. Jews from all over the region were crowding the city for Passover, and they would be telling and retelling the story of how God saved his people from Egypt. They would be talking about Moses leading them out of slavery. They'd be talking about the plagues in Egypt. They'd be talking about the Passover lamb, where the name of the holiday comes from, right? They'd be talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. And they'd be talking about the promise of freedom at last. They were celebrating Passover. And this story that they were telling, it was God's story, but they knew that they were a part of it. It wouldn't have been seen as ancient history. It would have been seen as something that they were all very actively a part of and hoping for and looking for freedom from oppression in their day. It would have built an anticipation and an excitement and a hope. But at the same time, there's actually another scene that's unfolding. So as you know, Israel at the time, they were under oppression. It was Rome. And the Passover, a holiday to celebrate freedom from oppressors, would have created not just an anticipation and excitement, but this underlying tension, this darker tension of frustration that they were currently in oppression, of anger, of bitterness towards Rome. And Rome knew this. And so just as it was customary for Jews from all over the region to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was also customary for, for, the, for the Roman rulers and officials to travel to Jerusalem as well, but not just on their own. Roman officials would not just travel, but they would actually bring soldiers as a show of force to Jerusalem. So, so coming in from the west of Jerusalem, where they would have been coming, you would have seen um, chariots drawn by horses. You would have seen um, mounted cavalry. You'd have seen soldiers on foot. You would have heard the sound of their marching. You would have heard, seen banners being waved, golden eagles mounted up on poles. You'd have seen the leather of the armor. You'd have seen their weapons. You would have heard the beating drums, and it would have been terrifying. To those watching, the dust would have swirled up around them, the, the sound of the creaking leather and, and gl the, the sun glinting off the metal. Just imagine the, the show of force and what they were showing was that they were in charge, that they were the boss and that you were subservient to them. 
You, they were, not only would they show it, but they would demonstrate it in just horrible, gruesome ways. It was terrifying. And so those looking on may be silent. Some might have cheered out of fear. But guaranteed, there would have been an underlying sense of frustration and tension. While the entire city is talking about freedom from the oppressors. Think about the tension in this moment. And then you look to the east, the other side of the city, and here comes Jesus, riding down from the Mount of Olives, with a crowd of people large enough, as the scripture said, to stir the whole city, proclaiming that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the one who all of those coming to Passover in Jerusalem were waiting for, that he was the one. They are shouting that Jesus is the one who they believed would overthrow oppression. And in this moment, the oppressors were Romans. And laying down the robes and waving the palm branches wasn't just a thing they thought of in the moment. It wasn't just like, oh, this would be cool. Oh, maybe he looks hot. Let's wave branches or the road's dusty. No, it was actually a show and a sign of royalty that history would have known. I mean, we see it in 2 Kings. There's a moment where Jehu is being anointed and heralded as king. And they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. This was, a, this was how they demonstrated that this person was the king. And just a couple hundred years before this moment, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee, who led something as known as the Maccabean Revolt, he cleansed the temple of foreign gods and he, and he led this militant, militia, sort of like, like army soldier revolt against the oppressors at the time and killed tens of thousands of people. And many hailed him as the Messiah. And his entrance was very similar. They laid palm branches out and they, or they spread cloaks out and they raved branches in the air. But that didn't end well for Judas Maccabee. The revolt failed. But that's on their mind. And so as Jesus is writing in, one who throughout his life had revealed over and over again in small ways and in large ways that he was the Messiah coming, what they imagined, what the mob, what the crowd imagined in that moment, there was no way for him to bring sight to the blind, to, to um, set the captives free if it wasn't a show of force. There was just no way to understand that there would be any other version of this than to come and be a better version of Judas Maccabee or, or a stronger version of good guy Rome. I don't know. Like that's what they imagined was coming. And so Jesus now taking this position, fulfilling the prophecies from Daniel and Zechariah, rides into Jerusalem, being hailed as the Messiah, in the midst of all sorts of tension and the expectation is that Jesus will finally step into the role of a better version of Judas Maccabee. The only way the crowds could understand this. And the shouts of the people would have echoed that. There's, in Mark's account, this, um, the triumphant entry is actually recorded in all four gospels. It's quite fascinating. Um, but in Mark's account, the story that he uses to describe the shouts or the word that he uses, sorry, to describe the shouts is one that's used throughout scripture to describe somebody shouting for help. No, it's not like a celebration, like, yeah, he did it. It's amazing. He's here finally. No, it's actually a shout of help. That was the word that Mark used to describe what was going on in this moment. A cry for help. 
Uh, years ago, I was working from home, um, and I was working on something. I forget. It was probably, well, I don't know what it was, but I was working upstairs. And Chandler and Lincoln, they were, it was several years ago, so they were much smaller. They ran upstairs, Dad, do you want to play football with us outside? I was like, oh, fellas, I'd love to, but I can't right now. I'm, I'm working. All right. So they took off out. And I could see them from my window as they started playing football. And, and Jenny, they got Jenny to go out and play with them. And Blakely and, and Chandler and Lincoln were all playing football out on the street outside. And as I was working, I also had the realization that I was living out like, like a Hallmark, Hallmark version of like an absent father moment. You know, I'm just like, I'm working. Leave me alone. You know, that moment, I'm, like, I'm not doing this. So I put, like, closed my computer, went out and joined the team. And I said, all right, I'm going to be on mom and Blakely's team. Well, Blakely let out this shriek that was just full of life and energy. But it wasn't because me showing up meant the game was over. It wasn't because when I showed up, it meant that we had already won. Now, remember, this was the boys were much smaller. So me showing up meant that they had a really good chance of winning. Her, she was actually visualizing what could happen. And that was the shriek. That was the celebration moment where this meant for us, potentially, that this could be the ending. She could see what might happen with me showing up. That's what's going on here. They could see, they could, they could visualize in their minds what they wanted to expect, what they hoped this Messiah would come and overthrow Rome. And this could be that moment. He's fulfilling the prophecies from Daniel. He's fulfilling the prophecies from Zechariah. The next step for him, so they thought, was to ride straight to the Roman oppressors. And start the battle. It's what they imagined. They could visualize it. They could see it. All of history rushing towards this very moment. But here's where the story turns. As this moment begins to arrive, what is expected, what is anticipated is turned completely upside down. And instead of becoming the militant Messiah set to break the teeth of the oppression and lead an army against Rome, Jesus would present himself as a self-sacrificing servant king. And the desire of the mob for the Messiah and Roman oppressors to meet, it did happen, but not on a battlefield. It happened on a cross. And through that, Jesus would do all that the prophecies foretold. He would carry out the promise of bringing sight to the blind, freedom for the captives, but it would be in a completely different way than anyone could have imagined. A couple of weeks ago, Tim mentioned this idea that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, but he was also the lion. You see, what Jerusalem saw coming down from the Mount of Olives and what they witnessed was what they thought this king would be was different. They witnessed this, this, this Messiah who they all knew was the Messiah would come and they watched him sacrifice himself. They saw the sacrificial lamb coming in. The Gospel of John puts it this way, the lamb who would take on the sins of the world. But, Jerusalem, the crowd, the mob, Rome, they could not see what the heavenly saw. What the heavenly saw coming down was the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
not to go to war against people. No, he would forgive the people that were killing him even as they were crucifying him. But what the heavenly saw was the lion set to go to war against death itself. And he would win. Isaiah 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. All of history before Easter was rushing towards this moment. And everything that emerges from this moment can be made new because death has been defeated. You see, Jesus' riding into Jerusalem is not just a moment of fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's actually a foreshadowing of his coming kingdom. Because in his kingdom, all things are made new. And what makes Palm Sunday so amazing is that it's like it's the beginning of the scene of which all of history is anticipating. Every person in the crowd waving palm branches, laying coats on the road, watching from a distance, shouting and cheering in the moment, each one of them came with a little bit different expectation of what they thought. Each of them pondering this question of what kind of a king would he become? And as their idea began to unravel, the question became more and more haunting. Wait, what kind of king are you going to become? I thought it looked like this. I thought you were supposed to do this. Some desperately wanted him to be king. Some maybe didn't want him at all to be king. What kind of king would he become? But the crowds cried out, shouting out for help, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to take a moment, if you would, with me, just in your mind's eye, and picture what it might have been like for you to be standing in that crowd as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I know it's super hard to like even remember what happened a week ago, but if you could remember like, or think back and try to picture yourself in this place, what would you have been thinking about as you looked at him? What kind of king would you have wanted him to be? See, what we believe about the type of king that Jesus is will shape the story we live in and thus the way we live out. The problem comes when our belief of the type of king that Jesus is gets skewed by our own ideas of what we want, by our own theology or morality or belief system. And pretty soon the type of king that Jesus is gets changed into the type of king that we want him to be. For me, I know this happens when, when the type of king that I'm trying to serve begins to look and sound a lot like me, begins to agree with the things that I agree with, begins to approve of every decision I make, votes the way that I vote, holds back forgiveness from somebody because after all, just let him sit in it a little while longer. And pretty soon the reality of the king that I'm serving is no longer Jesus, but it's just a mirror.
I don't have time to get into the entire story. I'd love to just share it with you sometime over coffee or something, but I'm just going to do a quick version. Um, through my high school, college years, I'd spent a lot of time doing ministry, tons of time, like doing stuff, traveling, speaking, teaching kids, doing a whole bunch of stuff. It was borderline irresponsible, to be honest with you. They had me teaching parents before I was a parent. It was wild. Anyway, um, it was fun, but you know, not great advice all the time. <laughs> it was free. Uh, anyway, so I was doing this sort of, like I was, I was doing a ton of stuff in ministry, right? Just going for it. And um, even got to the point about 12 years ago where I was on, on staff at a church. It was, an, it was really fun to tell people it was two of the best years of my life, but followed by two of the worst days. It just kind of all came crashing down. Um, I was fired with, and it was just horrific and painful, painful, painful. And God took us on this journey, basically felt like the Israelites wandering through the desert for several years. And, we, and I, uh, I hopped from job to job to job. One of the jobs that I took on the East Coast um, was, was flooring. Um, I worked with Jenny's dad and we did flooring. And, and um, I, I'll never forget this moment. Uh, I, was, I was scrubbing floors in an assisted living center um, in the middle of the night in Virginia. Um, nothing against Virginia, but that's just, you know. Um, you know, I should have known on day one when they handed me knee pads. I should have been like, there's something different going on here. Maybe it's not what I expected, like knee pads, or why do I need these? Are these for somebody else? They're, oh, they're for, oh, they're for me. But I was scrubbing floors, and I was cleaning floors, and I remember being on my knees in the middle of the night, 2, 2.30 in the morning, just scrubbing. I mean, this, my shoulders were just screaming, and I was just so angry. I was so angry. And I remember just having this fight with God and just saying, what in the world was everything, all the skills that I've learned and, and have accumulated over these years, I, I'm doing nothing, of, nothing now with them. Nothing. Like this is, this is the worst use of my time. I am far more valuable than this. These were my excuses. These were my argument back to God. I was so frustrated I remember just scrubbing these floors, being like, I, I gotta get out of here. This is an absolute waste of my time. Now, this was something that had been building in me for a while. And I remember on the floor that night, scrubbing. I just, it's like I heard an audible whisper. It's like, if, you never use any of the skills that you think you've gained again. Would you still do this if I've called you to it? I sat up and just wept. It wasn't the most dignifying place to weep either, but I felt like it was appropriate. I wept. The God that I was serving, I realized, the king that I was trying to follow was a king that actually I wanted to serve me. I realized that the king that I was serving, the king that I wanted to serve, was one that would actually take care of my desires and, and make sure I was doing what I wanted to do. But that wasn't Jesus. That was me. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. 
And the answer to that question that night had to be, yes, I will do this if you've called me to it. It had to be. So let me ask you again, what type of king are you serving? Is it Jesus or is it a mirror? The kind of king that Jesus is and the kind of kingdom that Jesus rules is completely upside down. It doesn't define success the way our world defines it. It doesn't define value the way our world defines it. The kind of kingdom that Jesus leads is a kingdom where the last will be first, where those who mourn will be comforted, where the meek will inherit the earth, where those who are persecuted are blessed, where circumstances don't define you, where your hurt and pain don't define you, where we who are sinful can be counted as clean, where he doesn't need my skills or talent, he just wants my heart. In our family, as God has written this story and, re and revealed it to us over and over again, you know the story where he's God and we're not, that story? As he's revealed this to us over and over again, we've come up with a bit of a mantra that we speak over each other as a prayer almost. It's one that reminds us of who we are on this side of Easter and before his return. I want to share it with you. It's just simply this. I'm a new creation, part of God's never-ending love story to make the world right with him. That's the story we live in. That's, the, that's us. We're new creations. But we're not part of a, of, a, of a world that puts us in the middle. We're part of God's never-ending, never-giving-up, long-suffering, always going to complete it, working hard after this. We're part of God's never-ending love story to make the world right with him. And, and if this is the story that we're a part of, then it's going to shape how we live it out. So wherever you're coming from this morning, whatever your story, whatever your background with the church, whatever the hurt that you're holding, whatever your understanding is of King Jesus, like the crowds shouting as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, bringing all their expectations and hopes and needs and pains and longings for him to bring them freedom. I think the same invitation Jesus is extending to us this morning to bring your hurts, your pains, your joys, your fears, the lamb has been sacrificed. The lion has defeated death for us. We can walk in a new freedom as a new creation. As Isaiah 61 puts it, Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Guys, this is, a, this is a promise of what the Messiah will do. So are you brokenhearted today? Because he promises the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom that he leads can bind up and will bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. I don't know what you're bound up with today. I don't know what you're stuck in. 
I don't know where you feel stuck. I, don't, I can only assume you know exactly where that might be. He says that he'll be, he's the Messiah, the king that he is and the type of kingdom that he, he leads is a kingdom where the, where the captives are set free. The release from darkness for the prisoners. Do you feel dark, lost, confused? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to come for all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. In Zion, are you grieving? He is our comfort. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Is there something going on in your life right now that is so broken, so messed up, that you actually have no idea of how it's supposed to be solved? You have no concept and no understanding. Like the mob shouting about for Jesus to come in, the only way that they knew for him to do this was through force, but he didn't do it that way. Is it not working out the way that you want it to do? Is there something that's just so full of brokenness that's like it's ashes around you? He says he can turn that ashes and make it beautiful. He can make beauty for ashes. It's what makes him God. Not that there'll no longer be difficult things or hard things or ashes or brokenness, but he can make them beautiful. And I can't explain how because he's God. That's what he can do. And so the invitation today is to live in that new creation, to live in, as, a, as a new creation, part of his never-ending love story. The invitation is to recognize that King Jesus is going to lead and he's going to be a king of a kingdom that I want to be a part of. Not one that I want him to do, but one that he's going to do and I get to walk alongside of that. Believing the truth about that story, man, it's going to change and shape you. That story, that truth, will change the way that you interact with your, in relationships right now with your spouse, with your children, with your coworkers. Believing that you are a new creation and you're part of this story to bring God's world back to him, it changes the way that you interact with everybody around you. When you go to work on Monday, whatever that job is, wherever you're at, are you gonna allow God to use you there? Yes, even with those coworkers. It affects the way you view your own value, your own worth. I guarantee you, you're loved more than you know. Because you're a new creation. And we live on this side of Easter. Death has been defeated. The lamb has been sacrificed. And because of that, everything is made new. Would you stand with me as we pray? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at jesuschurch.org.